Here we are, guys. Season Ender. This is one of only two season enders. Well, rather, one of two season bridges that's not actually a two-parter. Although, I guess Endgame was a two-parter too, wasn't it? So that actually also qualifies. <laughs> um, this, uh... I like a lot of things about this episode. This is this is another ball, knock it out of the ballpark episode for me. Even though there's a few things that aren't good, it focuses on a lot of what makes Voyager great, and one of the reasons why I still enjoy watching the show after all these years. Uh, I like the fact that they use the slipstream. That's a great way to explain how to go faster than light, and it's a great way to bring back something that was kind of left there dangling in Scorpion so that they could do more with it in the future. And indeed, they will do more with the slipstream drive concept in the future, and it becomes a staple in Star Trek Online, so that's nice too. Um, they had this method of open-ended writing. I, I read a huge amount of details on the, on the construction of this episode. It was insane the amount of detail that there was for this. But one thing I want to share with you guys is the way they did this. They would they would deliberately, like, write the most basic skeleton framework. Like, we want this scene, and we want this scene, and we want this scene. Then what? And, and they'd branch out from that, and branch out of that, and branch out of that. And they would deliberately leave ideas untold or uh, un unresolved, specifically so they could pick them up, and or the other could pick them up and move with them. Um, a lot of people actually collaborated on making this episode. In fact, the initial episode pitch was being done by every single writer uh, of the team in the break room, and eventually that became a chaotic mess as it tends to, it's very rare that a large group of writers can put out something good, just because there's so many different peoples with different ideas. Um, Brennan Braga, a man I have started defending more and more in the last few years, took the idea, took the story off, went by himself and said, okay, focus. And his whole focus on the, was on the idea of looking back at season four, everything that had happened thus far, the Borg, Janeway, Seven, the advancement of the crew, the desire to go home, and all this fun stuff, they really pushed to have continuity and consequence be a big deal in this episode, which I find hilarious, by the way, um, given that this is Voyager, and that's something that will become a kind of a sticking point later on, especially since Rick Berman had this personal vendetta against continuity, but I digress. Um... The other, but then, but that was just an interesting episode. What really made this episode great was then Braga went and connected with Joe Minoski, who came in and said, "Human element." I've said this before and I've said it again. The two men, Brandon Braga and Joe Minoski, do great stuff together, and the two of them have made an amazing script for this episode. It's it's, it's actually funny, uh, having gone through so many episodes in in short order like this. Um, Coming to this episode, the actual dialogue feels smarter and better clipped, and just overall better presented than you know, most of the other episodes. You can tell they really put their, their best feet forward on this one. Uh, one other interesting consequence of this episode, which I just feel like sharing as an anecdote, the they had over 70 optical shots for this episode, which if you don't have a, a range for that, an average episode has closer to 40, and some episodes go much lower than that when you have a bottle, episode, a bottle show or whatever. They had to actually save money, because this wasn't a two-parter, in, uh, in order to afford that in the budget by actually having just the one guest star. Originally, the plan was to have far more than just the one gentleman. So one guest star uh, freed up a huge amount of the budget in order to spend all those effects. So that actually worked out really well. Let's talk about the episode itself. First of all, I like the idea of phaser tennis. It's hard to explain why. It just looks like fun. You know, you hit it, it changes colors to hit the other person, you know. It just looks like a fun sport. It's not the first time we've seen a phaser-based sport introduced in Star Trek. In TNG, they did something similar to this. It was just nice to see it presented like this. Um, 
Arturus is interesting. Now, I'm going to talk about him in full spoilery mode right now, because I don't actually have much to say about him. But what I do have to say is... I cannot talk about it without spoiling him, so that's why we're just jumping into this. I do like how multiple times, both before and after his deception is shown, he makes it a point of saying how he has no blame or hatred of the Borg. In his view, and probably the view of his people, the Borg are a force of nature. They are a storm. You don't get upset at a storm. You don't hate a storm. A storm is something you avoid. A storm is something you try to bypass or dislodge or otherwise deal with. He is upset at the person who, in his own words, had the choice. And it's interesting... Because from his perspective, it's very obvious how that works. It's one of those horrible circumstances. I've talked before about the difference between... Uh, well, it, the terminology varies, but basically there's, I saved the world, and I fixed the world. Okay, Saving the world means stopping the big bad from destroying it. That's easy. Fixing the world is ridiculously hard, and that means actually fixing the substructure, the structure, the societal, the culture, the economics, the infrastructure, actually making the world repaired after all that's been happened to it, or indeed fixing it if it was broken to begin with. Cough, Dragon Age, cough, cough. <laughs> so what we have here is a unique idea because in his mind, you know, the Borg being unleashed such as they were after the defeat of the Undine, there was no stopping them at that point. They were already on the run. They were already starting to lose. It's very clear from the way he describes it. And by the way, his description of the Borg invasion is poetry. The idea of dozens, hundreds of Borg cubes surrounding his system. The idea of the outlying co colonies falling in a matter of hours. That is, that is truly the terror of the Borg. And they didn't have to show any of that. His comment about how they had already surrendered to their own despair when the cubes actually arrived in their home planet... That's exactly right. That is exactly how it should happen. The fact that they keep sending one cube after Earth, I've tried to explain that away, but even I will admit it is trying to explain it away. The real reason it happened is because if they sent the full force of the Borg after Earth, we'd be watching Star Trek Borg from now on, you know? But I digress. It's one of the consequences of making a, a villainous force that is as strong as the Borg. You have to come up with a reason for them not to win. And it gets harder and harder to do that over time. It's one of the reasons why it's easy to overuse such a villain. The Reapers actually had some, something of a similar problem over in Mass Effect. But again, I digress. But the one thing I find fascinating about this whole thing is the Undine factor. I made my, my opinion on that pretty clear uh, about a season ago in the episode Scorpion. How I felt the Undine were actually in every way a worse threat than the Borg. Because the Undine, as they were presented, keep in mind we haven't reached that Terrible second episode yet. The Undine, as they were presented, were very Dalek. Kill everything that is not us. Everything. So, this man obviously sees what, what he sees. I mean, he sees, oh my god, you, you, you let the Borg win, and then because the Borg won, they came and destroyed us. And yet, the reality is, if the Borg had lost, then the Undine would have come and destroyed them. It, it, it's actually funny and horrible in its own right because it was truly a no-win scenario. Neither of those sides being a victor was a good thing. But it's easy to see how you can't have that perspective, have that picture, you know? It's easy to see how easy it would become to surrender to the despair wolf in that circumstance. I like, 
I, I'm going to be kind of blazing through my thoughts on this episode because overall it would just be other if I just went down scene by scene it would just be this scene's awesome and this scene's awesome and here's why and this scene's awesome and here's why and I like doing that but uh, I don't want to repeat myself too much so this is probably going to be a pretty short episode sorry guys um, Jay, I like how Janeway has enough of a brain to recognize that this is too convenient not only does it show a degree of genre savviness but it shows general intellect this is Voyager, in the middle of the Delta Quadrant. Now, good things can happen, and there's nothing wrong with having cautious optimism. But if things just suddenly started working correctly, my first reaction, too, would be, okay, let's look into this. It would be great if it's true. It's funny because this same concept will be partially explored in a later episode, Bliss. We'll get to that one when we get there. I really like how they did the montage of Seven and Janeway's uh, logs kind of overlapping on each other. And it's funny because it highlights the similarities between the two women. The differences are obvious. I don't feel the need to discuss those. The similarities, though, that's what really caught me, caught my interest and really made me fascinated because both women are afraid. I'll be talking more about Janeway's arc next episode. In fact, that's going to be pretty much the episode to talk about Janeway. But this is a big moment for Seven because it's the moment when she really, finally, truly makes the decision, adamantly, for once and for all, that she does not wish to be reassimilated. And as is emphasized twice throughout the episode, Seven makes a point that she does not want to be more human, but she does not want to be Borg. She wants to be herself. I hate to keep beating this point in. But as they're talking about their log entry, Janeway is just, oh, it's going to be great to do this. And you can hear in Mulgrew's tone, she does a wonderful job of the subtlety. Mulgrew talked about how much work she put into this episode and, and her, her analysis of her own character, which came, came really paid off in the next episode, which, again, I already mentioned. We're, we've been doing a lot of leading up to the next episode. Um, but how, she, how she's talking about it, and you can just hear she's building herself up, knowing it's probably going to fall. But she can't help herself. She can't help but want this to be real. Want it to be a... You know, right? Seven, by contrast, her fear is much more obvious. She is already someone who is just barely finding her place. And still feels like an outcast amongst Voyager. And the idea of going into a world which might hate and fear her... That's terrifying. There's two interactions I love with Seven that don't have anything to do with Janeway. One is with Taurus, who has finally reached a point where she actually has an understanding and respect for, for, for Seven and treats her like a person. She has this great line about how we'll be outcasts together, you know. Work in that humor, it'll help you get friends, you know, blah, blah, blah. And then Harry, as she's leaving, gives he, he stumbles for a moment, catches himself and says, it won't be the same without you. Just genuine, heartfelt affection there. And I like how Seven honestly smiles in reaction to that great human interaction. Let's talk about why when Star Trek is at its best, shall we? I think this is a good time to talk about that. Because I've noticed the best of Star Trek, generally, this is obviously not a hard set rule, tends to involve two elements. Number one, some kind of horrifying threat that must be overcome. And two, it's all about the characters. The threat provides the fuel, the source for what leads into this, but the bulk of the attention is all on the characters and the character interactions with each other and their disagreements with each other and the planes flying overhead. <laughs> I'm kind of near an airport, guys. Sorry. I've also got the fan on, but I talked about that on the stream. It, it's summer. It's hot. That's going to be a feature from now on. Sorry, guys. Um, 
but yeah, it, it, best of both worlds. Scorpion, uh, half the DS9 stuff with the Dominion more pushing the character arcs. You know, in the Pale Moonlight, to use a specific example. All of these episodes, and there's plenty of others, but all these episodes all have these same two elements. This is no exception. We have an unusual threat because the Borg aren't actually the threat in this episode. In a wonderful meta sense, the Borg are literally the storm, as described, the force of nature. The threat is the Borg, right? Except they're not. The threat is the person trying to shove them into the Borg, which again is wonderfully poetic, because that's exactly what Janeway did to him. Unintentionally, but he, she still did it. He didn't hate the Borg. He hated the person who shoved his people into the Borg. And so... The threat of this episode is not the Borg, but the person shoving us into the Borg. You understand? It's really well-constructed episode in that sense. Um, so all of this episode is really about the character dynamics. Uh, Tom, or not Tom, excuse me, Harry gets that great line. Uh, Taurus gets that great line. Janeway and Seven, of course, completely steal the show. And that's basically it, unfortunately. But it was really well done. And, and again, I'm trying not to just gush about how well it was. Let, let's move on. There's a great line. There's a lot of great dialogue in this episode where Janeway says, it's only intuition if I'm right. And then Seven and Janeway have a great scene where they have something that is so rare in Star Trek. I will be talking about this more when we get to TNG, but there's a concept called the Roddenberry Box. Excuse me, there's a mosquito on my wall. Die! Okay, got it. And the Roddenberry box uh, is an idea of you can't do certain types of storylines or you can't do certain types of interactions or dialogue, you know. It was basically, this is what Roddenberry allows to write. Whether it was a good or a bad thing is still debated to this day, not just by the fans, but by the actual writers of the show, many of whom are, basically all of them actually, are still alive and still active in, in fiction. But the kind of argument that Seven and Janeway had would never have happened in the box. Because it is an out-and-out out argument. It is the two of them flat out, completely disagreeing with each other in such a way that I was actually surprised it didn't come to blows. But the great part about it is it's all a facade. Janeway is afraid. Janeway is afraid that she has done wrong by Seven, that she has misled her or misguided her, and that she's going to lose Seven. There's a lot of that maternal feeling that Janeway has towards Seven, and, and understandably so, especially since, as I've mentioned before, Seven's basically only a year old. They actually give it a date in this episode, nine months. Conversely, Seven is afraid. She even acknowledges this later on in the episode. She's, she's not angry. But anger is a perfect mask for fear. It is so easy. Some people do it without even thinking about it. Most people, I would argue, do this without even thinking about it. They're, when they're like, ah, and they act out violently or angrily or yell or yash. But what they're feeling is not anger. The anger is a mask for what they're really feeling. And in this case, fear. Seven was terrified at the idea of being back on Earth. And who wouldn't be? Look at, look at how much difficulty she's had adapting just to this crew. A mere 150 people. That is nothing compared to the trillions back home. As an aside, although I wish this, this didn't come up, but I wish it had, the Dominion War was still happening at this point in time. How tolerant do you think the Starfleet and the Federation would have been during the Dominion War if Voyager had come home with a, with a former Borg? 
Because there's only really two ways that goes. One, they try to use her technology and, and whatnot for the war effort, which she may or may not agree with. Or two, well, you get the idea. I mean, what do they do to Picard, after all? Twice. Moving on. But then, the, the thing I love about the scene is that it's so obvious that both of them have are, are, are having this argument because both of them don't know how to actually express themselves. Not really. Janeway, who is, who is struggling under the reins of, I have to be the captain. And it's clear that it's crushing her. And again, this is the Mulgrew thing coming in again. And again, I'll talk about this next episode. But her presentation makes it clear that she is struggling under the reins and the weight of being the captain and cannot actually express herself properly to Seven. Meanwhile, Seven doesn't know what proper expression even really means. And I'm really sorry to do this, but I need to kill another bug. So many bugs around here. Sorry about that. So Janeway, uh, Seven doesn't even know what expressing herself really is like. But it all comes through in the end when Janeway finds the truth, finds the hidden message, and Janeway's expression is obvious. Grim. You know, and, and there's a bit of anger there too, betrayal. But Seven's expression says it all. Jerry Ryan does a great job of this. Her expression is a little bit of shock and regret. In other words, Seven is actually upset that Janeway's intuition was right. Janeway, Seven is actually upset that it really is a red herring or a trap or whatever. That look spoke volumes. Then there's a scene which is great because... Janeway uh, confronts Arturus, and he continues to try and spin-doctor the situation. And you can see on his face, this is someone who's not really a villain in the classic sense of the word. Most villains are smart, charismatic, and usually evil, a.k.a. used to the ideas of, for example, killing or hor harming or otherwise hor doing horrible things to people. But Arturus is none of those things. He is a desperate, mad, insane individual who is so grief-stricken that he cannot see reason. In fact, one of my favorite elements of this episode is the fact that the speech that Janeway gives him, you know, the classic Voyager, or excuse me, the classic Star Trek, you know, human speech, you know the speech, fails. Doesn't even reach him. Doesn't even penetrate. I like that, because it showed just how far gone he was. So, I like the fact that he had a backup plan in mind in case he was caught, but he basically couldn't actually deal with the situation. In fact, this shows up later when he goes to shoot Janeway in desperation. But if he had been a real villain, he would have gotten her well before she transported. He had tons of time, but he's not. He's just a guy. So he's like, Ugh. and you could see in his movements, he's just, no, 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 you're going to die. No idea what he's doing. No idea how to kill like that. It added some wonderful subtlety to his character. But that's not the thing I love most about that scene. The thing I love most about that scene is how he accuses Seven. She has nothing, to, you know, she's done all this and I will find all this work for you. And Janeway, without even a second's hesitation, says, Nope! And through action, trusts Seven. I liked that. Because again, it was her showing her real self. Both Seven and Janeway demonstrate that when the chips are down, that when the situation has, has stopped being, you know, we can have idle discussion to, oh God, this is actually happening. 
they are much more alike in their thinking than they probably both want to admit. And they probably both trust each other a lot more than they'd probably like to admit. Uh, then there's my note about the description of the Borg invasion, which is, oh god, it's poetry. You gotta watch this episode just for that description. And great dialogue, and the speech doesn't work. And I only have two more notes here, so <laughs> I told you this would be a short one. There is a scene that was deliberately designed to be intimate. No, not like that. The idea was they wanted a scene, they literally put in a scene where Janeway would manipulate Seven's Borg implants, specifically so it would involve the two being close and touching. Again, no sexual connotations, because that's not the point. The point here is that as an intimacy, a connection between two people that both of them are uncomfortable with. Janeway, because she's stuck in her role of the captain. Seven, because she's unfamiliar with that concept to begin with. Again, that similarity between the two characters, that, that mirror image of the two, if you will. Except it's not a mirror because they both connect at the middle, if you follow this very strange analogy. Um... And so the two of them having to connect that closely, literally, physically, was a metaphor for the, for the fact that the two of them were trying to reach out to each other. Janeway admitting that she, you know, her problems with being the captain, which, by the way, l l does lead directly into the next episode, and how much she cares about Seven and how much she wants to, to you know, do right by her. And Seven's own admission that she was actually afraid, that she wasn't you know, in anger, that she wasn't wanting to stay in the, the Delta Quadrant. She just had no idea what else to do. And, uh, and then there's a line she gives, which is wonderful. She says, I don't know, I don't want to go back to the Borg. I think this is in the coda, but she says, I don't want to go back to the Borg, but I don't want to be amongst the humans either, because I, I don't know where I belong. Janeway gives the perfect response to this, which basically culminates and terminates the first arc of, of Seven's character arc. You belong with us. You are not defined by your race or your gender, your skin color, your creed, your family regardless. It's ironic because it is the actual Roddenberry ideal personified. You belong with us regardless of your past and origin because you are family. We're not going to care about that when we get to Earth because you'll always have a home here. I liked that. Normally, I would do a, a, season of, uh, a season video. I've decided not to this time, mostly because I am up to my eyeballs in work, and I'm just barely struggling to get all my videos recorded in time, ignoring the fact that my workload is going to go up the moment I have the availability to do so. So, yeah. <laughs> so rather than that, we're going to do two things. We're going to talk about uh, a brief thing, and then we're going to talk about Season 4 as a whole. October 13th, 2012. That was when my first Voyager episode went live in my basement, the only place I could actually get time and, and, and isolation to record. I was in a weird place back then. <laughs> but I just mentioned that because it has been over two years we've been sharing in Voyager together. Across four seasons. We're over halfway through Voyager at this point. Or arguably we are halfway through Voyager, depending on how you define it. And 
I don't know, it's just kind of a weird feeling, you know? Kind of a good feeling. And I just wanted to share that and say thank you for for sticking with me all this time. And I hope you'll stick with me for the next three seasons, too. And, you know, whatever other crazy stuff I could do. But I also want to talk about one thing, because for those of you not aware, I was actually really, really amped to do this series. A whole look at each episode individually. That's exactly what I wanted. And so many people were like, well, just look at it like as a season at a time, or just look at Voyager as a whole. And I said, no! I want to ruminate. What have I said so many times when you summarize, when you assess, when you do a truncation? That's a word, right? All you do is get a piece of the picture. I want to show you the whole thing. I want to really dig into it and share my thoughts with you and hear your thoughts in return. And I can't do that without going episode by episode. And it was a big risk for me. And when I first started it, my viewing figures were pathetic. And I just want to say thank you to all of you who have actually been commenting on the videos, have been telling me on the stream that you like it when my episodes go live, and have been sharing in this experience for the last two and a half years with me. So, thank you. <laughs> you belong here. Hmm? Season 4. If you had asked me, two and a half years ago, what my favorite season of Voyager is, I would say Season 3 without hesitation. And I know I'm not the only one. And yet, as I've been going back through this, Season 4 has been phenomenal. And this is with analysis mode on, by the way, which usually tends to remove, re, you know, reduce my enjoyment of certain pieces. See Star Trek Insurrection for a good example of that. But with analysis mode on, Season 4 has been just completely knocking out of the park. Great stuff. Great character dynamics. Great stories. Great, great advancements. Good stuff all around. There have been some bad points, of course, but I can't point to any episode of Season 4 I would actually call bad. Subpar, certainly, but not bad. And I loved it. Season 4 has definitely been the season of change. This is right about the time Brennan Braga actually started taking uh, Kenneth Biller's position. It's not, it's not official at this point in time, but he started being mentored into the role. What I mean by that is Rick Berman was in charge of Star Trek, unfortunately. And Kenneth Biller was the number two man. He was basically the, the, the executive producer just under... Rick Berman, if that makes any sense. Um, so he was the guy in charge of so many things. And so was uh, Jerry Taylor, was the other one. And both Kenneth Biller and Jerry Taylor were both completely okay with just kind of letting Voyager do whatever. It doesn't matter. Just make a show. They uh, and they'd specifically referenced uh, comparing it to the Andy Griffith show. On purpose, by the way. No offense to that show, but the idea was... We don't need to do anything. We don't need to try anything. We don't need to change anything. Just let it be. Braga never thought that way. The more I learn about the man, the more my heart goes out to him because he was basically shackled by contract and incredibly frustrated in his roles. It's no wonder the first bits of Enterprise failed miserably. I'll talk about that later, but let's just say that I don't really blame Braga for that. And I know the man gets lots of flack, and that's okay. But season four is when Braga started flexing his political muscles and actually exerting some influence over the stories and the direction of the show. We saw a lot more of that odd sort of kind of continuity, but not really continuity. We saw a lot more emphasis on the characters and the unique situations you can do with them. And we saw a lot more of actually trying to use the Delta Quadrant and actually do stuff out here rather than just having it be TNG 2.0. And a lot of that sits on Braga's shoulders. So definite props to the man. The other thing that Season 4 has done really, really well, of course, was introduce Seven of Nine. 
Seven of Nine naturally was a great addition to the show, something unique to Voyager, truly. They've done the fish-out-of-water story since the original series with Spock, but Seven, she's a unique version of Fish Out of Water. She is someone who isn't even fully aware of the concepts of fish or water, to, to, to stretch the analogy a bit. She is someone completely alien to this situation and trying to adapt in ways that she's not even certain how to. And I feel like the discussion of that character arc was basically one of the biggest strong points of Season 4. It is worth noting that in later seasons this will be a bit overused, but in my opinion, it was never actually excessive across Season 4. It was always good and always had something to do with what they were going with it. They also kind of sh shook up the status quo a bit, not just with the removal of Kess and the introduction of Seven, but a lot of the character dynamics changed and moved around in Season 4. Notably, uh, Taurus and, and Tom getting together was a big thing as well, believe it or not. This leads to an unusual situation, because a lot of the fandom at the time, myself included, were really hyped about Season 4, and given what we had already seen on DS9, we were certain that the next thing we would see was that in Season 5, there would be another change in the status quo. Things would be shifted, and we would be like, oh god, and here's the new thing. And we all thought we knew what it would be, too. We thought they'd get back to Earth. It was logical. They were, they were teasing it, hinting at it. There were bits of it here and there. Even the writers were thinking it. That is, of course, not what we got. What we got instead was season five, which is an odd season. We'll talk about that more, obviously, later. Another thing I want to mention is the unintentional character arc of Janeway. I've talked about this before, and indeed we'll talk about this next week as well in the episode Night, which is basically the Janeway episode. But the reality of it is, as I said before, everything made so much more sense when I read the interview from Mulgrew where she herself had the interpretation that so many fans have had. Let's make this clear, okay? This is, this is no longer the realm of speculation, okay? This is now fact. We have now confirmed this. The writers and producers of Voyager had no character arc for Janeway. A vague maternal relationship with Seven, and that was it. She was the female captain. Later on, they, had, they dropped that female aspect thing as Jerry Taylor was removed from power, so to speak. But nevertheless, that was always her character arc. The captain with some maternal stuff. And that was it. No intention, no deliberation. But, but if you ask just about any actual fan of Voyager who really watched the series and really cared about it and watched it you know, twice or three times or analyzed it or whatever, they would tell you, well, okay, <laughs> virtually everyone I've talked to has had the same interpretation of Mulgrew's character. Uh, I'm not going to share the actual interpretation because it's present in the next episode and I'll talk about it there. I don't want to repeat myself. But that interpretation has reached validity now that we have that interview from Mulgrew, now that I've actually read that and watched that. And it's like, oh, that makes so much sense because it was her interpretation. It's no wonder that so many of the fans all felt that there was this one way to interpret Janeway because the actress playing her interpreted it that way too and therefore played the role in that direction. So even though the writers and producers and, and executives in charge of Voyager didn't do anything with her, character, the actress did. And therefore, we have an actual arc for Janeway. Is this something that can be countered a character arc? Yes. I've been thinking about this very topic, because I've, I keep calling it the unintentional arc, and that they don't really get credit for it. Yet the more I think about it, I think Voyager, the show, does get credit for it, because Mulgrew put it out there. The actress put it out there. The actress put, her, put that into her performance, and we took it from her performance. And that is just as valid as if the writers or producers had put it out there. So I think we can call this a real character arc from Janeway. And it's all thanks to Kate Mulgrew. Mm.
Um, final thoughts about season four. Season four, politically and under the hood for Voyager, is when they really hit their stride. And after season four, they were guaranteed the full seven seasons. It was in contract, in red. No further threats of cancellation or budget issues or anything. They were good. In some ways, that was a great benefit. And we will see some good stuff coming out of the fact that they can start to stretch and do new and creative things with the show. But there's no denying that the overall feel of Voyager is like, you know, here's season one, and then season two, and then they're like, okay, we got to revamp everything, and then season three, and then season four. We did it! And then, aside from a few peaks, the overall quality of the show would kind of start to slip over the next three seasons. And we'll talk about this as we go through this. But I, I mention it here because I feel that's a consequence of season four's success. It's, it's one of the very... It, success never guarantees anything. But one of the most common ways, two of the most common ways, I should say, that I tend to see people react to success is, one, to keep going full steam and to push out great stuff. And two, to relax and say, oh, okay, we don't have to try as hard. Again, no blame to individuals goes out for this. This is just the Voyager production staff as a whole. But again, I still enjoy Voyager from this point on. And to be perfectly blunt... If you asked me, you know, well, is season one worth rewatching? Meh. Is season two worth rewatching? Meh. But I do genuinely think season three through seven is good of Voyager. And a lot of that opinion comes from having rewatched this show with analysis mode on. So, my overall opinion of Voyager has actually gone up over this last two and a half years. And that's another thing I'm really happy to have shared with you. I'm not happy to have shared Threshold with you. I'm sorry about that. I, I, I thought about skipping it, but, you know. I'll see you next time, guys. Season 5. Diplomacy, Captain? Your diplomacy destroyed my world. What? What are you saying? You negotiated an agreement with the Borg Collective. Safe passage through their space. And in return... You help them defeat one of their enemies. Species 8472. In your colorful language, yes, Species 8472. Did it ever occur to you that there were those of us in the Delta Quadrant with a vested interest in that war? Victory would have meant annihilation of the Borg, but you couldn't see beyond the bow of your own ship. In my estimation, Species 8472 posed a greater threat than the Borg. Who were you to make that decision? A stranger to this quadrant. There wasn't exactly time to take a poll. I had to act quickly. My people managed to elude the Borg for centuries, outwitting them, always one step ahead. But in recent years, the Borg began to weaken our defenses. They were closing in, and Species 8472 was our last hope to defeat them. You took that away from us! The outer colonies were the first to fall, 23 in a matter of hours. Our sentry vessels tossed aside, no defense against the storm. And by the time they had surrounded our star system, hundreds of cubes, we had already surrendered to our own terror. A few of us managed to survive, 10, 20,000. I was fortunate, I escaped with a vessel, alone, but alive. I don't blame them, they were just drones. Acting with their collective instinct. You! You had a choice! 